0: This is Mary Celeste Spell. Welcome to the BlackBerry Podcast, where we'll dive into stories and knowledge of the incredible people that are part of the BlackBerry story. You'll hear from longtime friends, amazing visiting personalities, and our own inspired team members. It's no secret that we love talking about wine at BlackBerry. On this episode, you'll hear Food and Beverage Director Andy Chabot chat with friends and winemakers Jasmine Hirsch and Michael Cruz about trends in the industry and what they're drinking. Cheers!
1: Jasmine Hirsch of uh, Hirsch Vineyards, Hirsch Estate, one of the great places on earth, one of the best vineyards on earth, Uh, and uh, Michael Cruz of Cruz Wine and Ultramarine. Ultramarine. Okay. <laughs> sure. Two separate labels. Right. Okay. I think sometimes people Yeah, I think you know, that's don't know. probably true. <laughs> Good. Um, well, thank you both for being here. We really appreciate it. And I, did, I really want to just start, I don't know that throughout the event we talked about sort of your Genesis stories. And I'd, I'd like to hear, you know, what got you into wine? What kept you in wine once you got there? Were you born into it? Jasmine, you I think were. Michael, I don't know. Right. Um, but I'd like to hear from both of you on that.
2: Thank you, Andy. And yes, I was born into the vineyard business. Um, when growing up, my father had not yet built the winery. So, uh, but I did grow up on the ranch that is Hirsch Vineyards, uh, running wild through the fields and um, really a wonderful place to grow up. Um, but occasionally pressed into service by my father to work in the vineyards, yeah. which of course we, we hated as kids. Uh, we thought it was terribly tedious, but I do have, Strong memories of my father getting up from the dinner table to switch the irrigation, and just the you know his the way he worked, and the fact that you know we would say, "Dad, you need to wash your hands," but he had the dirt of a farmer. You know, you can't wash it off, and he was in the vineyard six days a week. So, grew up uh, with that experience. <clears throat> went to college, and. Uh, The year that I graduated, my father was getting ready to build the winery and start making his own wines, and he he tried to get me to come work for him, but I was having none of it. I wanted to go out and explore, and I certainly didn't want to work for my father. (laughs) So he sent me a formal offer, which I declined, and I went uh, off into the world and did non-wine related things um, for about 10 years. And then in 2008, I was working in, in private banking, and I just really was not enjoying my job and feeling very much just of yeah. the intensity of the corporate experience.
1: 2008 was an interesting time. And it was in also banking. an interesting
2: time yeah. to be in banking. It was actually a great learning experience. But my father, you know, repeated his offer uh, and I, I went home to go work for him, honestly mostly because he was willing to give me a job and I really didn't like my current job. It seemed at the time that, you know, really kind of just a, a little bit of a me being lazy almost. and with hindsight, I, it feels like fate to have gone home to work for him. And I was encouraged in the decision by sommelier by the name of Bernie son, who mm-hmm. was at the time Jean Georges' corporate beverage director, and uh, told me to stop complaining about my current job and to figure out what I really loved. And I said, well, I love food and wine. And he said, you should go work for your father. I said, Bernie, I, I can't work for my dad. And he said, go work for your father. He's doing something really important and, and you should help him. So he sort of gave me permission, but I also, I'll be honest, it, at the time it felt like, oh, I guess I'll just go do this. But then of course I got the bug. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. and so you didn't think at the time that might be that might be it, kind of. You thought maybe just right now and let's see? Or?
0: I think
2: I had no idea what I was doing at the time. And I can look back with hindsight and describe some plan to it, but I yeah. didn't have a plan.
1: Michael? Yeah,
3: in a way, similar story, different trajectories to get to the same place, but I was on a science track. I was studying biochemistry, I wanted to go to grad school, through a series of events, ended up at UCSF uh, working there, and it was an amazing, amazing project that they put a lot of trust in me, and I just had a moment um, where I realized that what that type of science had become um, was was not for me. It was just not just that it was too corporate. it's not even that, but that there was so much ego kind of involved in it mm-hmm. and um, the work I had always viewed science as this extremely pure, almost monastic life. And so when I <laughs> when I saw behind the veil and realized, oh my god, there's politics in this uh-huh. uh, and and ego I I uh, I kind of recoiled, and um, I grew up blue-collar kid, fifth-generation San Franciscan, so for me, the wine business was a way for me to still have a blue-collar job because that, that well, still, I mean, you still drive a forklift. You still turn presses right. on and off, turn pumps on and off. That was stuff that I, I knew I could do, um, but not, let's say, follow my dad or grandfather into, you know, bus mechanics, which was <laughs> kind of what they did, and and I uh, I didn't um, I didn't love that so much. It was really just a I'll do this for a little while, and then I'll go to grad school at Davis or something, and that was the idea. But after a year of it, year and a half of it, I realized um, actually, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and it was fun. And I don't think I knew anything about wine then, or or really had any broader interest in it. But diving in like that. Gave me an opportunity to see that and, and realize, oh, I actually, this industry is really amazing and interesting and and intellectually uh, stimulating and, and also physically stimulating. I mean, the idea of of making something with your hands was a big part of it for me. Wow,
1: yeah. and and where were you when you? Did I was that? Li-
3: I was literally at UCSF. I was literally living in San Francisco, and uh, my first job was uh, working at Sutter Home. They needed someone who working in their lab, setting up this, we don't need to go into the details, sure. but basically sure. literally setting, setting up something that I had done in my sleep for the past three years. Gotcha. So they were shocked to hire someone for, I don't know, 18 bucks an hour that could do this in a day, which is what I did. And then from there, I, I realized quickly that, that that wasn't the type of winemaking I wanted to do. So then I started working at Maryvale right afterwards. I see. Yeah.
1: Great. And so... For, you know, for both of you, again, so, you know, you were at Maryvale, and mm-hmm. you were at your vineyard, Jasmine, uh, so maybe for Jasmine, you know, what was the impetus to take vineyard to winery? Um, your family sold grapes. They're well-known for uh, for their vineyard, for the name on that label. And, and I mean, some of the most collectible American Pinot Noirs have the name Hirsch on the label, but not the top name, it's the vineyard name. So what what took your family to that step?
2: My father had two motivations that are related um, for building a winery, and uh, for so a, as you mentioned, for the first 22 years of the vineyard's existence, he sold 100% of the fruit and didn't make any wine. Uh, actually, we, we did make wine in, in buckets as kids, um, stomping on it with our feet, so we really? made a little bit of home wine, but... Um, the, the, my father's motivations were, were twofold. The first is he believes, and I think he's right, that, that real wine is made um, in the place where the grapes are grown. So the traditional European estate model. I think people make extraordinary wines in the, more, in the negociant model. Um, and, and often that's the only way for a lot of folks to make wine because you know, we're very lucky that we own a vineyard. But, you know, my father looked around Mm. and he said, you know, my grapes are being grown here on the coast and then trucked, you know, two hours away to inner inner Sonoma or even in some cases Napa. They're not, they're losing that connection. He said, so I want to build a winery right here. And the second reason was he built a winery in order to understand the vineyard better. Mm. So there are 68 acres of Pinot Noir planted at Hirsch divided into 60 farming parcels, so really micro micro parcels, and that's necessitated by the complexity of our geology and topography and climate, which is coming from being so close to the coast and the San Andreas Fault. So he said, you know, I farm each of these 60 parcels individually. I want to taste each of them individually mm-hmm. because, of course, the ultimate feedback from growing wine grapes is the wine. And so he said, you know, we're going to build a winery in order to become better farmers, mm-hmm. and it really has uh, taught us so much about the vineyard and our farming choices and our planting choices as well.
1: So Great. Thank you. And, you know, Michael, you have two wineries and right. a custom crush facility. Right. What what took you that direction? When, when did the entrepreneurial bug
3: <laughs> yeah. get after you? Well, I think that's the right way to put it, to be entirely honest. I think it was probably entrepreneurship that, well, I wanted to have more creative control. That's true, but I think that as opposed to uh, finding a different job in Napa, I realized that wasn't exactly where my interests lie. And it's sort of funny because you know it's quite analogous to some of the people, some of comedians or actors that end up writing their own TV shows. That was exactly the story for me. Is I I just didn't find a job that fit with what I wanted to do, so I so made a made job, your own job. <laughs> that that was was that, and. Um, I would love to say that that was a well thought out decision, <laughs> but it really wasn't. It was just more. Nobody else is doing this. I want to do this, and and that's what that's what happened. And by this, I really yeah. mean um, sort of sparkling and still wine with a focus on on California in a way that hadn't been made, or at least the focus wasn't that for for maybe forty years. So so that's that's really how I started on Thank that.
1: You. Well, I'd really like to, to dive a little more into sort of that subject of sure. where you've seen California wine kind of come from. Uh, and then when you started, and, and for both of you, you know, when you started, and then what's the trajectory? Uh, where is it going? Where are you going uh, with your wines? Right.
3: For me, one of the frustrations of Napa, and, and there's plenty of amazing wines made in Napa, this is not a, a wholesale discounting of that. But one of the problems really was is people would pay a certain amount of money for land. And that was the impetus for saying this is an amazing terroir. And I certainly understand that feeling. If you paid $10 million for something or $20 sure. million dollars for something,
1: you it better think be good.
3: it better be good. Right. And, and maybe they're right even. But the reality is, is that. We can't all drink $150, $250, $300 bottles of Cabernet, and often we don't want to drink it even if we could. Right. So um, my focus really started in, in sort of these other varieties, Val being a big one, but but it could be Carignan, Petit Sirah, more let's say uh, I don't know. I don't want to say traditional varieties of California, but but varieties that have been in California for you know 60, 80 years. Chardonnay has really only been in California in a in a broad sense for. Maybe thirty to forty years, really? you know, yeah. um, and and sort of playing around more with those to make wines that that are drinkable and and fun and still intellectually stimulating, but something that you could drink every night if 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 that was your intention. And I think that um, I'm certainly not the only one in that. I think that's been a big move over the last twenty years, something like that. So.
1: Yeah. And Jasmine, we've done tastings with your wine where, you know, we've tasted, you know, vintages 09 forward, um, 08, they, 07. They've certainly evolved, you know, over time. Um, where where did it start? What was the style desire when it started? Where is it now? Um, and, and do winemakers play a role in that?
2: It's interesting because when my father first – Built his So my father's not a winemaker, he's a farmer. And so from the beginning, he hired winemakers to make the wines for him. And from the very beginning, he was very clear that he didn't want the wines to be manipulated, overly manipulated. He didn't want any additives except sulfur. He didn't want the wines fined or filtered. And this was in, you know, the early 2000s, before the current movement of natural wine, which is very focused on those things, you know, was, was at all in existence. Um, so my father had these very traditional ideas about what real wine was, what traditional wine was, you know, coming from the time he'd spent in France. So we never made spooflated wines. He was not chasing scores. But I will say that, that we picked pretty ripe.
1: Yeah. We
2: picked pretty late. And I think that as a farmer, it makes sense. You, you would say to yourself, like, I just want to make sure that it's ripe enough. And also, you know, the early 2000s, you know, that was sort of really when bigger wines had become so dominant and and popular. My father's agnostic to style. He'll drink an Amaroni one night, <laughs> and the next night he'll drink a little red wine like a Chassagne Rouge, so light that you could read a book through it. And for him, what matters is that they're authentic to the place. Um, I'm much more narrow in the style of wines that I like. But, you know, style wasn't really important to my father. What was important was the intention. I want you to taste the place. I want you to taste Hirsch. And of course, that's not just the drinker's experience, but the whole reason of why we were making wine. So that being said, you know, the wines were pretty ripe. When I started working for my father in 08, I realized, you know, I had been living in New York. I'd had the the luck to get to drink a lot of really great Burgundy and, and other wines. And I came home and I thought, oh my God, I don't really like our wines. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and it' uh, been kind of remarkable. Yeah,
2: I saw. You know, they were kind of big and fruity, and so you know, in two thousand and eight, my first vintage at home, it was really hot, and for some reason, our field sampling it just didn't work. We thought we were picking at you know thirteen percent potential alcohol, but it worked out to be fourteen five. I mean, it was just mm. sort of a, it was a, a I don't want to say it was a disaster, but it was it was an extreme vintage. And so in 2009, I was able to convince my father to let me take over all of the field sampling, mm-hmm. and all of the testing of the field samples. So sort of I was sort of like a uh, assistant to the winemaker in that in that task. And then I started to get opinionated about when we were going to pick, and my dad and I argued in 09 about picking decisions, and maybe I won half, and he won half. And that was really a transition vintage for us. The alcohols were lower. The wines were less overtly uh, kind of over the top fruity. And when we went into the cellar to start tasting the '09s, in into the individual plots, individual lots, they were so delineated. And that for my father was, okay, this is the future because this mm-hmm. is the style that serves our intention, our intention of revealing terroir. You know, big ripe wines can be so delicious, but. The problem, especially I would say, in my experience with Pinot Noir, is that excessive ripeness is a homogenizer. And what's exciting mm-hmm. about wines of terroir and wine in general is difference. If all of the bottles in the Blackberry Farm cellar tasted the same, why have all those different bottles? Yeah. What excites us is the difference in them. And so we, our style changed in order to preserve difference, in order to preserve terroir. So.
1: excellent. Do you think? that we've talked a little bit about almost excessive perfection Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in wine and in winemaking. Do you think that that homogenizes wine a little bit as well?
2: Well, My father says we have to remember that the original meaning of the word perfect didn't mean without flaw, it means complete. Mm -hmm. So therefore it has to include the imperfect. And I think Pinot Noir is, in my opinion, not a grape that lends itself to rusticity. So it's not like Syrah, where you can have really noble Syrahs, like an Hermitage and then a rustic village Syrah. I think Pinot really needs to be correct, so to speak. But then how do we avoid in, in making that correct, elegant, pure container as winemakers, right? I think of it almost like you're building a goblet in which the terroir will live. And you don't want the perfection of the goblet to, again, to efface or suppress the terroir and i think when you have a great pinot noir there's an a, there can be a wildness and an energy and a personality to it but held in this very elegant container so for me the question is how in our winemaking and partly also in our farming choices do we achieve that to not suppress but also make sure the wine is is correct and yeah. so many pinot noirs have become so square so boring yes yeah, yeah. i
1: think Boring, you know, I think yeah. you get into that. Yeah.
3: I, it's funny because I think I, I think very similar. I think, but maybe I would say it's slightly different. I think, you know, I have a, a wine that is a, made from Saint Laurent and it's a Petnat and we make it as a uh, petit naturelle. We make it that way because in my mind, it's a simple terroir. And when we make it that way, we create a simple wine. But in that simplicity, it's quite elegant. It's quite pretty. It's great to crush on a summer's day. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's all those things. If I was to instead say, well, the noblest version of this is to copy Austria and try to make something with more fruit, more concentration, more focus, in doing those, honestly, wine-making choices, those transformations, the wine would not speak of place, right? It, it wouldn't speak to where it came from. And, and that to me is extremely problematic. I mean, the number one thing with wine is it has to taste good. For me, that's the most important thing, and and I think it's obvious, right? After that though, it has to speak to place and time, Mm -hmm. right? And because that is really what wine is. I mean, it's the vintage and the place in a bottle. That's the second most important thing. And I think to your question, I think often the pursuit of perfection either will sort of um, start blurring that second point it might even start blurring the first point, though. I, I've had wines that I truly believe are perfect that maybe they're not super fun to drink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you know
1: what I Possibly mean? Possibly not interesting.
3: Exactly. Right. Right. So, so yeah, I think I think you do have to have balance to, to both of that.
1: Well, thank you. I it's a, a very interesting subject to me as we talk about, you know, wines and winemakers and, and how things are sort of evolving in the world mm-hmm. of wine. And, you know, I think people, you can't. Just look at a textbook and make wine and right. do it that way. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. Uh, I don't think it would be interesting. Mm. We've we talked a lot about bigness in wine or power and balance in wine. Um, how do how the two of you define balance in wine and power in wine?
2: Balance is definitely unquantifiable. You know, you can't say that this combination of pH and alcohol equals balance. It is truly one of those things that you know it when you see it. And I think actually, even people who don't work in the world of wine, they can taste a wine and if it's out of balance in some way, like, they they might not be able to say what is out of balance, but they can feel it, they can taste it. So I think you know it when you see it. But for me, it's, it is really between two things, it's fruit Mm -hmm. and everything else. For me, And then with the question of power and concentration, which is a word we use a lot in the world of wine, I I always think we have to ask, where is it coming from? Because if it's coming from excessive ripeness, if it's coming from winemaking tricks, then it adds breadth to the wine. If it's coming from terroir and vine age, then it's coming from, then it's depth. And I think a wine that has Power through depth, but focus and um, and restraint. That it can be a big one, but it will be balanced and elegant, and I think also more age worthy.
3: Um, I'm glad you answered that uh, because I think I think honestly, as I as I spend more and more time, not just making wine but tasting wine, I think I have a much harder time answering that question. I think that my version of balance, I would say is that does the wine fit in the place that you think it fits in, right? Does it fit an archetype enough so it matches, right? Yeah. But it's still pleasing to drink. So I'll give you an example. You know, in Champagne, we think all the time of of it being a high-acid grape, okay? Absolutely. Uh, high-acid wine. And um, Jérôme Prevot, who's probably a huge inspiration to me, he makes Pinot Meunier uh, only from his own basically his grandparents plot tiny little plot and uh, one day and I, I think everybody would agree the wines are balanced and uh, maybe slightly different from the rest of champagne but balanced and, and maybe even powerful and one day I was uh, had a little left in a bottle mm-hmm. and I decided to take it to my lab and I checked the pH of it pH was as high as many red ones well this is this is a problem, right? Because that doesn't match what we think of as balanced champagne. But yet, to our palate, it's perfectly balanced. And I think that's really the challenge, right? Is mm. we have an idea of what balance means on paper, right? But then in actual practice, it might mean something completely different. So I sort of agree with Jasmine in a way is that you just sort of have to taste it and you'll know it. But that that there is a incompleteness to that statement to me <laughs> that I, I'm
1: challenged by. So there's a gut feeling, but no science. Exactly. Maybe. Right, right.
2: There's a there's a corollary to this in the vineyard, um, where you're trying to balance the vines, right? Help the vines achieve balance. And some years it's easier than others. And I think those are the years that produce the most effortless, effortlessly elegant and balanced wines, are the vintages where the vines found their own balance. But of course, we have to help them. And, and one of the most important things that we look at is the relationship between the canopy, you know, the green part of the vine and the fruit, the reproductive part, and uh, trying to find the appropriate balance between those two. It's completely different for different vineyards um, and for different purposes too, yeah. for different what you're trying to achieve in the wines. Um, but it's it's interesting because when I first started spending more time in the vineyard, it, it was so overwhelming because there's so many different factors that you're looking at and many which I didn't even see at that time because my eyes were not open to them um, but and I remember asking my father one year I was tagging along it was close to harvest but not quite He was taking notes we were in block four and, and he said he said you know he, well, he wasn't explaining anything he was just working and I said he said, well it's too soon to drop fruit here And I said, how do you know And he said, well, there's like 15 factors that the vineyard is telling me that are coming at me, but it's just, it's almost harvest. I don't have time to explain them all. And now I understand what he means that it becomes intuitive, that you you almost can feel what the vineyard needs and 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 what's the right time to do something and what is ba- is the vine going to be stressed by the amount of fruit that you left or do you need to leave that fruit to help the vine stay balanced? And so it's. You can't quantify that. I'm sure somebody at, at UC Davis has, has written a textbook that claims that you can. But for me, it's you have to see the vine and you have to know the vineyard and feel what's right. And it's the same thing with tasting wines.
1: Yeah. So the, the people involved are part of the balance also. The people 100%. in the vineyard, the people in the winery. Yeah. Michael, you're known... Maybe that's a broad statement, but I, I think you are known for sparkling wines. Yeah. And you, you mentioned your desire to to focus on California sparkling mm-hmm. and California um, other varieties as well. Right. But where did that come from? And, and you also mentioned PetNet Nat right. a few minutes ago. Right. If you could describe that sure. a little bit in that well, process. Well,
3: I'll do I'll, – we'll lean into that a little bit. But um, I got into sparkling wine um, for kind of a dumb reason, which is that it was hard. That was it. It was literally – a technique-intensive uh, a way to make wine.
1: Life didn't offer enough challenges. Exactly, that's right. A- and
3: and I thought that uh, if I was going to do something, the best way to to separate myself from everybody else was make do something really hard. And that and that was it. And um, then as I learned more and and focused more on on learning about champagne and learning about what other people were doing in in the new world, not just California, but really kind of everywhere with sparkling wine, I realized that sparkling wine at its height can be another lens to sort of examine terroir, right? So you could have still wine and that's one lens and then, you know, you could have uh, a sparkling wine and that's another lens and that you can still show this amazing sense of place and have a wine that has bubbles in it, right? Like that's okay. Now, how Petnat comes into it, and I'll explain that in a second, but... That became another sort of sidestep to like, to really get into it. So Petnat is a way of making sparkling wine where if we talk about the traditional method, you take a still wine that's dry and then you add sugar and yeast and put that into the bottle. And the bubbles are coming from the added sugar and the added yeast. In Petnat, you take a fermenting wine that's still sweet, a little sweet, not super sweet, Um, And then the bubbles, you put that in the bottle and the bubbles in the bottle come from the uh, endogenous sugars, the leftover grape Mm -hmm. sugars, and the yeast that started that fermentation. So it's just two sides uh, of the same sparkling coin, I guess. Um, What I have found that has been really interesting is that in varieties that are very aromatic by themselves, Val de Gay being one, Saint Laurent being another one, that actually, I feel like the vineyard shows a little bit clearer hmm. if we do pet net now in varieties that are not particularly aromatic, like let's say Chardonnay. Okay. Yeah. Those actually work better in traditional method. And it's been this sort of push pull. And actually there's one vineyard that I work with, Rancho Chimiles, which we've done still and sparkling versions and have spent a lot of time tasting both side by side to see, well, which one does the vineyard speak loudest? Is it sparkling? Hmm. Is it still? In 2018, we just did sparkling uh in 2014 we did just did still so there's sort of this kind of play um in how we go and express i think honestly it's probably confusing for some of my customers <laughs> but to me it's it's more of a uh i don't know it's kind of a thesis on on what tools can we use to sort of express site
1: amazing jasmine you've sort of been known to i would say influence people's wine drinking uh is that fair to say Maybe with your fingernails and Instagram. Um, That's fair. But, uh, I mean, I know people that are like, what is jasmine drinking kind of a thing? Um, Ultramarine. Or Ultramarine. Yeah, <laughs> probably that kind of thing. Jemais. Um We all uh, got to share some Jemais recently, and it, it, it's become hard to get. Um, and, and you're part of the reason for that. Sorry. Um, it's perfectly okay. You drink what you want. Uh, but where do you think that comes from? I mean, what, what are people looking for that they're getting, say, from you, that they're, they're not getting from Eric Asimov or, or a wine critic?
2: Well, it ties in with your question about the direction of, of wine these days. And I think one of the most interesting things that's happened in wine has been the emancipation of the American palate. And I think that it is... Due to a few factors, um, the first is just the growing self-confidence of American wine drinkers. We don't sure. need to be told by a critic anymore what's good. We have had enough time and experience on our own to, you know, and to, to determine for ourselves what we like. And I have talked with a few collectors that you know they started off buying, you know, for their Italian wines. They would fa- they, they would you know. Buy what Mr. Parker said and for their Spanish wines, for their Burgundies, and for their American wines. And then they sort of realized over years of drinking that, wow, I don't really I do like how he guides me in this category, but I don't like his opinions on Italian wine. And so they've really parsed that. Hmm. And and the second thing I would say that's contributed to that is the number of different sources that we now have to learn about wine. And that can be blogs, that can be really good local retailers. I mean, they need to get more credit for how awesome it is to be a wine drinker in America now is all the great local wine shops. Um, But I would say social media. I mean, people um, might care more what I'm drinking or you're drinking than what, you know, a magazine tells them they should drink. Um, they may have met us or, you know, heard us on a podcast and say, wow, that person has a very interesting point of view about wine. I'm going to see what they're drinking. And I, the reason I think that's wonderful is that it creates space in the marketplace for more varieties of wine, different styles, different place from different places. And so for small producers who aren't following the sort of old, you know, hegemonic, path of big Napa Cabernet or big California Chardonnay or Bordeaux or, you know, some known category, there's space for us to get out and talk about something different and find an audience. That would be my way of avoiding answering your question completely in a way.
1: (laughs) So, So what are you excited about in the world of wine? What are you drinking
2: right now? Well, I'm excited about simple wines. What Michael was talking about with his goal, with with, with his wines. And, um, you know, my father would say, you know, sometimes the Saint-Joseph is a more pure expression of the Rhone than the Hermitage. You know, because it's a cheap wine. The winemaker can't afford to put a yeah. bunch of new oak on it. And it's, it's less manipulated. So sometimes you can get this more... Um, but but, you know you have to seek them out because often simple inexpensive wines can also be you know just supermarket wines but looking around at producers all around the world who are making fresh elegant less expensive everyday drinking wines and we still want to drink I still very much want to drink you know profound old wines but less frequently I used to chase them more and now I don't and I'm and when I do drink those kinds of wines, those sort of unicorn, you know, very special wines, I want to drink a whole bottle with a small group. I don't want to Not have a tiny taste. taste. I, I, I've, I've learned over the years the difference between tasting and drinking. And it's a completely different experience of a wine. And one of the things that I try to really do with our wines, especially as we're getting ready to release them, is to drink them. We spend so much time tasting our wines and barrel. you know, oh, is this okay, you know. But finally, at the end, we have to sit down and we have to drink them because our customers drink a full bottle. So what is it like after the second glass, the third glass? How does it make me feel? How is it with the food that I'm eating tonight? It's a completely different way of experiencing a wine. And so both in our own wines and how we offer them to people and also in my own drinking, I'm sort of over this, like, oh, let me just have a little, you know, Mm -hmm. I just don't want to do that anymore. I want to become more close to that bottle. And also, I think it's more respectful to the people who made it, you know, to really sit down and develop a relationship with that bottle of wine over a few hours is, is a way to honor the, the the maker and the place it comes from. So.
1: Wow. Michael, what are you excited about? What are you drinking? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think, I think
3: that I'll answer that question in sort of an odd way, is that I <laughs> am interested in sort of the second generation kind of always. So by that, I mean, for all these sort of new natural wine producers or or things like that what's the second generation going to do from that and and i don't necessarily mean literally the second generation but what does the mature winemaker 10 years into the project what are they going to do do you know what i mean so you know the capriot is a great example like it's a it's a relatively small uh french producer of of sparkling wines mainly pet nats from the loire their wines have matured quite a bit over the last few years, sort of following their progression and mm-hmm. what they're doing. That's something that's really quite interesting to me. Um, but kind of coming from the opposite direction of Jasmine, I haven't had all that much experience with fine wine. So having, uh, being able to, to share that with her has been really an amazing experience for me, uh, albeit on a much smaller level, uh, you know, but, uh, but that has been something that I find really interesting and captivating.
1: Uh, you just mentioned. A movement that I wanted to touch on mm. quickly, which is the natural wine movement. And mm-hmm. you almost have one foot in, right. if you want to even call it a movement. Right. Um, I have my personal feelings about it, which is it's too bad that the word natural has been sort of taken right. from everybody. Right. Um, but how do you see that movement? Is it, is it good for the world of wine? It seems almost militaristic at times. Right. I think that anything that's hyper dogmatic isn't great.
3: And I think I got lumped into natural wine sort of kind of early, even though I'm not really a natural
1: wine producer, truthfully. But how do you you define?
3: So I would say natural wine, first and foremost, grapes have to be at a minimum organic, right? After that, the winemaking production leaves little room for any additives other than sulfur. Certainly not yeast, certainly not bacteria, certainly not uh, acid. And depending on who you're talking to, sulfur additions... Are limited and sparse. Let's put it okay. that. Way. I think. I think in a nutshell, that's probably the a, about as concise as a description as you're going to get. And to be fair, I do make quite a lot of wines that way. And I also think that having groups that are militaristic about how they view things is actually not that bad of a thing. You know what I mean? Having people that have aggressive opinions, you can ignore them if you want. But but having people actually trying to nudge the needle is is not bad. That being said, I think that we have to realize that there can be good natural wine and, and bad natural wine and, and good conventional wine and bad conventional wine. And what I really care about is drinking good wine and making good wine and making honest and fair wine. I mean, I think that's the most important part. Um, if, if someone has a different opinion from me in terms of what's the right way or the wrong way to do something, that's totally fine. Um, I don't like being told that I'm doing something. Wrong, but I will say that I think I think that gets overblown. I think there's very yeah. few people that are really like, "This is the only way to do things." Yeah. That's my humble opinion.
1: Yeah, I find that view seems to exist more on the server I the service side of it. Perhaps. I, I agree, and
3: I think that's one thing that does that does scare me. And, and we'll go down this road just a little bit further. Is that the natural wine movement? At least in Paris, came out of this idea of of young professionals not really being able to afford the wines that, that the generation before them did, right? So they drank more cheaper, our equivalent of jug wines, Van de Soif, from, from the Loire. And that's sort of how that kind of was created and moved. And What I get scared about is the 26-year-old sommelier in New York that hasn't had any of the classics, and it might not even be their fault, truthfully, because stuff is so expensive now yeah. and whatever. But once you start veering into thinking that the only wine available is natural wine, that is not great. And, um, and I hope that through broader education that, that sort of fought a little bit.
1: Excellent. Thank you both. Uh, you both make incredible wine. Uh, we really enjoy getting to spend time with both of you. Uh, Jasmine, your wines have been a big part of our collection, both from the vineyard and, and once you start making your own wines. And uh, we look forward to a great future. Thank you, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Blackberry Podcast. Continue following the journey wherever you subscribe. Thank you to our guests, interviewers, and audience. Dive into more stories, videos, photos, and podcast episodes on blackberryfarm.com and blueberrymountain.com make a great day